Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Tim Flannery, originally a paleontologist, took on environmentalism in 2006 with his now classic book, The Weathermakers, The History and Future Impact of Climate Change. At that time, 13 years ago, while global warming was on people's minds, sort of, Tim Flannery was very specific in what was happening then and in his predictions for the future, predictions which now, 13 years later, are coming true. I had a chance to talk with Tim Flannery at KPFA on April 12, 2006, about the Weathermakers and about what exactly was and still is going on in our environment and what outcomes we can expect. Tim Flannery, this book is making quite an impact. It seems to say, point blank, that not only is there global warming, but that it is mankind-induced global warming. Not only have we been doing it, but we've been doing it for 8,000 years, that the long summer that the planet has been experiencing has been going on since the birth of agriculture. Is that pretty much where you begin? That is pretty much where I begin. Um, But in order to understand the full significance of that, we have to understand something about the natural climate cycles that have been driving our planet in and out of ice ages for the last million years. Um, And those cycles are celestial cycles, you know, that do that. So they're highly predictable. We know what they should be doing now. They should be cooling our planet. That's not what we're seeing. We're seeing a warming. So that's where we start. So at this point, we'd be heading toward an ice age rather than away from it. That's correct. Yeah, that's, that's what should be happening. The fact that's not happening uh, is due to these greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. Now, scientists have had a look at a whole lot of other possibilities as to what might possibly cause this anomaly, including you know sunspots and solar activity and solar flares. None of it makes any sense. It really is the greenhouse gases. And I, you know, the skeptics try hard to deny this, but it's just... It's at the point now where we can measure these gases so precisely. We know from the physics of the gases how they actually work. We know where they're coming from because we can look at their chemical signature. There really is very little wiggle room left now in this debate. So when we hear anything to say that it isn't what it is, they're basically lying. I think so. I think people are spreading disinformation. Um, And I find that curious. The reasons for that are, I think, very interesting because Some industry groups are looking forward to the vast profits that will be made from the transition to the new low emissions energy economy. Other groups are backward looking and seem to think we can continue with the fossil fuel based economy into the indefinite future. Um, I don't know how they come up with that view, but it's that group particularly that are trying to mislead the public on this issue. There are several points in your book that I didn't know. One point that I wasn't aware of is that the greatest danger, we all, we all think it's gasoline and oil, but in fact, it's coal. That's right. Coal, uh, we're burning more coal today than at any time in the past. And that's hidden from most of us. You know, we've got this wonderful 
world of 21st century gadgetry now, and we've forgotten that it's a 19th century technology that's powering all of that, these ancient coal-fired power stations. Here in the US, some power stations that are still operating were built about 1910, you know, <laughs> and in inefficiently turning this highly polluting uh, fossil fuel coal into electricity that makes our lifestyles possible. Let's go back and talk about CO2, since The Weathermakers is basically a book about carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is the primary greenhouse gas. There's some methane, but it's primarily carbon dioxide. And this is what created the long summer. So let's start with the birth of agriculture very briefly, and then I want to move up to something called the Keeling Curve. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, as people started to develop agriculture around the world, we started uh, felling forests in order to do that. And you know, we've got to understand trees are made of air, right? They're not made of the soil they grow out of. All of that mass of timber and stuff you see in a tree is all pulled straight out of the air. It's carbon out of the air. So um, as people started to knock down those trees, they released all of that carbon in the form of carbon dioxide and started just to change the balance ever so slightly. So we should have seen the, sorry, the cooling trend that natural cycles would have brought to us begin about 8,000 years ago. Instead, temperature's been relatively stable through that time, just because human agriculture has been knocking down forests. And of course, um, some forms of agriculture have been producing methane as well. And that's offset this, this trend. A forest is, is what you call a carbon sink. Okay, yeah. that means that carbon goes into the forest, yeah. and when you burn the wood, the carbon goes right out. That's right. And this is something, again, that I just have to reinforce. Most people don't understand trees are built of air. They're not built of the soil underneath them. They're built of air. So, you know, they're pulling carbon out of the air, and when they rot or when you burn them, you're putting the carbon back into the air. And a forest would be more of a carbon sink than a field of grain. Well, that's right. I mean, you've just got to think about the physical amount of material in a forest compared with a field of grain to realising realize there's a lot more carbon preserved in that forest than in, in any field of grain. So as we start knocking down those forests and replacing them with fields of grain or with grazing lands for cattle and sheep, you're really changing the carbon balance of the planet. And I mean, 8,000 years ago, this was a very trivial little impact. It was probably like throwing a feather on a set of scales, you know, hardly registrable. But as time went on, more and more of the forests of the world got converted into, into fields and, and slowly that impact has grown. And, and remarkably, it, you know, it's grown at roughly the rate to offset the cooling trend and give us this remarkably stable long summer that we've all enjoyed for the last 8,000 years. And then things changed when coal was discovered and in the Industrial Revolution. Now, what happened at that point? Well, people have been using coal for heating purposes for at least a thousand years, but things really took off when people figured out they could use this coal first to pump water out of coal mines in Britain, but then as a, as a, as a transport fuel. And at that point, you know, in Britain particularly, coal was the fundamental underpinnings of the economy and people started burning more and more of it. And of course, the carbon in coal is really different from the carbon in trees in the sense that that carbon in coal has been locked away out of the atmosphere for hundreds of millions of years. The last time that stuff was active in the atmosphere, cockroaches grew to be a yard long. I mean, it was a really different world that we lived in. So uh, in a sense, coal is a gilt-edged way of keeping carbon out of the atmosphere. A tree's a junk bond. It's always coming in and out. Since the Industrial Revolution, global warming rose 1.13 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right. It's a small amount of change. But the thing that people don't appreciate is, you know, of all of the energy that's been generated since 1800, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, half of it's been generated in the last 20 years. Now we come to something called the Keeling Curve. Keeling was a scientist who climbed to the top of 
Mauna Loa uh, on the Big Island of Hawaii in 1958 to measure carbon dioxide. And what he noticed is that the earth seems to inhale and exhale. In other words, during the spring when trees are growing, carbon dioxide drops because it goes into the trees and in the fall, carbon dioxide rises. Uh, the only problem was that if you look at the Keeling curve, that little up and down thing over the course of 1958 to 2000, beyond that little up and down, almost a straight line up. That's right. Every year, the amount of carbon dioxide's increased. And this is what interested David Keeling. He was the most extraordinary man. You know, He started his experiments as a result of what was called the International Geophysical Year in 1957, when the world's nations invested a billion dollars, which was a lot of money then, on understanding earth processes better. And he managed to keep his measuring station going through thick and thin government cuts and everything, except for a few months in 1964, right through virtually till his death early this year. And he's an enormous hero of climate science, I think. But his trend, really, it is the great warning bell that we all needed to take notice of, because if you just project that trend upwards to, say, for another 50 years, um, you see what a great deal of warming the planet will experience and how very dangerous that'll be to life on Earth. Before we get into that, I want to talk about two years, two tipping point years. First, 1976, and the second, 1997. What happened in 1976? In 1976, Earth's climate seemed to reach a point where it was forced by this warming trend to readjust the way it operates. So the climate system of the Earth, it, it's, it seems to be sticky. You can add heat to the climate system and nothing happens for a while, but then all of a sudden it has to readjust. It's very much like putting a finger on a light switch. You can keep putting pressure on that light switch for a while and nothing happens, but then suddenly it jumps into another state. So that's what happened in 1976. Climatologists refer to years like that when the whole system readjusts as magic gate years, and a whole lot of things changed around the planet at that time. Um, we started to see changes in rainfall patterns around the globe. There was increases in ocean temperatures. There was changes in, in the living biosphere, the way corals grow and all this sort of stuff. So it was a big event. And 1998 was another really big event, another year when the world changed again and adjusted to the increased warmth. And that was the year of the big El Nino. That's right. And that El Nino was such a powerful force in our world. I mean, I still find it hard to believe that in that year, between 15 and 20% of the world's coral reefs died or were very severely damaged. And it's just extraordinary that that event had the power to wreak those sort of changes on our planet. And that was the year that Borneo burned, right? Exactly. If you'd been in Southeast Asia that year, you would have known that you know if you, the people of Kuala Lumpur didn't see the sun for much of that year due to this enormous smog cloud. And of course, the consequences of that smog cloud on biodiversity were incredible. Burning that amount of rainforest has had a huge impact, but then all the iron carried into the oceans did further damage to ocean ecosystems. So these are big events. We should be worried about these sort of events. This is not natural. This is part of a, a newly energized atmospheric system. Well, you don't mention it in your book, but I'm curious, what effect did World War II have on climate and the first Iraq war? As far as I'm aware, there are no detectable consequences of those two big events. Some singular events do have an impact. So the eruption of Mount Pinatubo, for example, had a measurable impact on the Earth's climate system. And climatologists were able to predict very precisely, particularly James Hansen here in the US, what the impacts of that eruption would be. It was about 0.3 of a degree Celsius of cooling. But for World War II and the Iraq War, they seem to be big events to us. But in the totality of the world's climate system, they seem to pass pretty much unnoticed. 
We very quickly, Tim Flannery, come up to where we're going, and this is where things get really dicey. Now, you're director of the South Australian Museum. That's correct, yeah, in Adelaide in South Australia, yeah. In that role, you get to see exactly what changes there have been. Is that correct? Yeah, look, our scientists are out there monitoring, measuring, uh, looking at the natural world, and, and, and trying to evaluate these changes that we're seeing out. The sort of changes that you'll notice depends very much on where you live and how aware you are of, of, of you know, bigger changes further afield. But in Australia, for example, one thing that many farmers and country people have noticed that I talk to is just that the ponds don't skim over with ice anymore during winter because the nighttime temperatures just aren't dropping as low. That's occurring because the carbon dioxide is keeping the heat close to the planet's surface. If you look further afield, you see some really ominous changes. I mean, you know, at the poles, the North Polar ice cap is now melting as a result of that additional heat. If we don't change, we're looking at an increase in the Earth's uh, atmospheric temperature of from 3 to 9 degrees Fahrenheit. Is that correct? Yeah, that is. And they seem like small figures, but the implications of that sort of temperature rise are actually very large. Well, let's start with the big one, nine degrees. Let's suppose that the world was composed of five billion George W. Bushes who did nothing and liked it. Where would we be by the year 2070 or 2100? My guess would be that more than half of those George W. Bushes simply wouldn't be with us, that we'd lose billions of people on the planet we destabilize um, biodiversity, causing great extinctions, and furthermore, destabilize the climate system of our Earth. And could I just look at one factor there that, that is, is relevant, and that is um, the, the sea level. People just don't understand that sea level as we experience it today is a free service provided by our current climate. It doesn't have to be that way. There is enough ice on our planet to raise global sea levels by 200 feet were it all to melt. The last time that that the the Earth was as warm as it's projected to be about 2050, sea levels were 12 feet higher than today. And just consider that that our global civilization is tied together by sea trade. That's that's why we are a global society. To have sea trade, you need to have viable port facilities. When we start destabilizing sea level, you can just intuitively understand the sort of threat that represents to this wonderful life that we all enjoy today. You know, and why would you do that? Why would you threaten to destabilise these systems just so you can continue to drive big cars and not think about where your electricity comes from? And that increasingly is being understood around the world. It's the George W. Bushes who, for one reason or another, just don't want to face that. That's, that's so deeply concerning. So when you're talking about nine degrees, you're talking about basically most of San Francisco except for the hills being underwater. You're talking about New York all being underwater. Yeah, that's, that's, that's or right. Or with huge dikes like Holland. Yeah, but you know, there's a limit to the, what you can do with dikes, you know. I mean, when you look at the, the, the whole world, I mean, there's 10 million people live within one meter of sea level within, in Bangladesh. So, you know, you can talk about building dikes around New York, but, you know, how do we protect humanity? How do we protect people around the world from these changes? I just don't think it's possible. The other thing that happens when the temperature rises is you get more events. Now, we've been experiencing here in the Bay Area a very, very, very wet late winter and spring. There have been very, very wet late winters and springs before, but what struck me is that it isn't that any given event is different from previous events. It's that there are more of them. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess it's it's axiomatic that a, a warmer atmosphere is a more energetic atmosphere. And that's because, you know, in part, the energy of the atmosphere is derived from water vapor, and you know, and we've got temperature gradients that are increased and whatever else. So yes, you see more extreme weather events. Probably the clearest data we have so far is from hurricanes. And, you know, we know that to drive really good hurricanes, you've got to have warm oceans and lots of water vapour. And both of those things are increasing. And and so it's no surprise we've seen a 60% increase in hurricane activity worldwide. And that's just one example of, of the, you know, it's one extreme of these weather events that we all experience. So we wouldn't have had, as you say in your uh, epilogue, we wouldn't have had a Katrina and a Rita in one year or even within one month in the past. Well, I think so. And if you look back on the fossil record, we can see what these very turbulent ocean areas like the Gulf of Carpentaria in Australia and whatever were like when the oceans were cooler. You know, in that area, which is Australia's Hurricane Alley, there's no evidence for hurricanes when sea surface temperatures were a few degrees lower than they are today. So we're beginning to understand the implications now of heating our planet as we are. And very few of them are pretty. There's very few winners in, in when you get such large-scale rapid change. You know, everything's adapted to the current climate. The collapse of the Gulf Stream. At what temperature do you think does that happen? Look, it is extremely difficult to say. The consequences of a collapse of the Gulf Stream are profound. And the secret Pentagon report, or so-called secret Pentagon report, that was commissioned into looking at what would what would the social and political and defence consequences be of a shutdown, showed just how terrible they were. Breakdown of international cooperation at a time when we have the most powerful weapons in the world. The chances of it happening... The Hadley Centre people, they're, they're in Britain and the world experts in this area, suggest it's on the order of 5% over this century. So not hugely high, but with such awful consequences, you wouldn't want to even think about it. That's where basically all of Europe reverts to northern Canada. Yeah, sort of Siberia. Sort of, you know, Paris becomes Siberia, you know, and the eastern US will suffer as well. On the ground, interestingly enough, the changes we're seeing in Gulf Stream flow are really at the margins of our capacity to detect it. The Gulf Stream's this great complex northwards flow with many eddies and things, so it's hard to measure accurately. Probably it's slowing down at the rate of one or two sverdrups. Now, sverdrups are sort of a volume of water that is about the amount the Amazon brings into the, the ocean. You know, We're beginning to see changes, but it, it's, it is very difficult. This is an area where science is scientific knowledge is incomplete. Collapse of the Amazon rainforest. That is, I think, a much more worrying scenario. The first very sophisticated computer programs now that are able to to sort of deal with this and project what might happen suggest that by about 2040, we could start seeing a collapse of the Amazon. I was very worried last year when we had that dry summer in the Amazon. Most of the rainfall in the Amazon is created by the Amazon itself, by the trees themselves. If that were to collapse, we would see such a pulse of carbon dioxide going to the atmosphere that we would be on an irrecoverable path then towards heating the planet in the most drastic way. How about this year? Is it better this year? We don't know yet. We'll have to wait to see. Methane release from the seafloor. That is another possibility that would have profound consequences. We know it's happened before. And could I just explain to your readers that, that methane on the seafloor is held in this extraordinary combination with ice crystals. So it's highly pressurized gas in ice. And it's weird stuff when you pull this ice up from the ocean depths. You know, you can put a match to it and it'll flame. Which, this is ice that'll flame out. It's pressure and temperature that are keeping it down there. If the ocean's warm or if the pressure gets, you know, is released, then obviously you can release that gas. There's been very little scientific work done on the probability of that happening this century, but it's another thing I just keep our eye on. People need to understand that our, our the scientific knowledge is incomplete in these areas. These are very profound impacts, but we've just begun to understand that they're real issues and 
study is is underway as we speak. And that brings up the question of computer models, which uh, the the contrarians debunk, and they say that they're all who can tell we can create computer models. It doesn't tell us anything. What you assert, Tim Flannery, and the weather makers, is that these computer ma- models are by and large extremely accurate. They're very good for some things. We know that they have their faults and their limitations. Um, but with the contrarians, I can say, okay, I can accept your view that they've got problems. Give me something better that I can use to project future change. And, of course, they're dumb on that. They're silent on it. They are the best tools we've got. We know they're limited. But until we can get something better, that is our light into the future. Well, we can assume, I would hope, that large swaths of mankind, if not China, will wake up to some degree. So nine degrees is probably not going to happen, but three degrees very easily could. Yeah. What can we see by 2050 or 2100 with that three degree rise? Three degrees is likely to destabilize Earth's climate systems, I, I believe. So I, I don't think we can afford to, to let that happen, quite frankly. I, I'm very concerned about sea levels. We're all worried about the impact of extreme weather events. Um, you know, will we have an insurance industry at three degrees of warming? I don't know. I don't think it'll be anything like the insurance industry we've got today. Borrowing money to buy a house in the southern US is, may not be feasible because no one will insure you. It's likely that, as I said, we'll have rising sea levels, more extreme weather events, changed rainfall patterns, a society that's just suffering more financial and physical stress. And that's not the sort of society I want to leave my kids, you know. Not to mention, uh, we've already seen coral disappear. We'll see all of the destruction of all the coral reefs, pretty much. That's right. Sorry, I didn't even get to biodiversity there, but you're right. We'll see massive extinction in every national park in the world. National parks will become death traps because species can't migrate out of them. You know, we'll see your total destruction of the world's coral reefs, at least where they grow today. It's not, yeah, not a pretty sight. Okay, now let's for a moment assume, Tim Flannery, we are not all George W. Bushes, and maybe even China will wake up. Let's look for ways to lower the increase to smaller than 3%, hopefully saving the planet. Because once we reach 3%, that is the tipping point somewhere in there. There are different energy sources available for mass-produced electricity. And let me run through them one by one. Oil, out of the question. Coal, out of the question. Nuclear. Yeah, I think that's going to be part of the future energy mix, particularly in places like China and India. You know, in the US and in Australia, we have enough options and enough choices we may be able to avoid building more nuclear power plants. But certainly in places like the developing world, it's hard to see where they're going to get their power from if it's not nuclear. Geothermal. Huge potential. I think this is one of the great growth areas for the planet. You know, it was Nikola Tesla said at first, you know, there's a lot of heat between the centre of our planet and where we live on the outside. And if we can only tap into that, we will have a limitless source of energy. And you can see enormous strides being made now in the geothermal area. But nothing within the next 20 years to change things. Oh, I think so. I think there'll really? be a lot. The, the, what's holding the, the development of things like geothermal back is the fact that the polluters are not paying for their pollution. So the people who run the coal-fired power plants and and the oil producers are not paying for that pollution they cause. And the polluter pays principle is the first basic step that you've got to adopt if you want to create an even playing field for all these technologies. Because when you do that, the slight cost disadvantages of things like geothermal and whatever um, are equalized, and we will release a tidal wave of innovation as soon as we address that issue. Solar power. A well-established industry, a well-established technology contributing enormously uh, now in terms of its percentage growth 
We know how to encourage solar power. You just adopt a German-style feed-in law where the energy utility pays you, you know, double the wholesale price perhaps for the energy you feed back into the system. My house runs on solar panels and nothing else. We have all of the amenities and facilities anyone else does, and I can tell you that it takes up about a quarter of our roof space. Wind. Well, growing at 20% per annum, it's the most cost-effective and most rapidly growing of all of the renewable sources. Uh, You've only got to go to Europe to see how big wind is. Bill Clinton had the most fantastic program to make sure that 5% of the power grid in the US was provided through wind. Uh, That seems to have gone by the board, but it is eminently feasible. And you know, if, if policy direction changed tomorrow, you'd have it in a few years. In my own state of South Australia, we've gone from zero wind to 8% of the grid in four years. And George W.'s favourite, hydrogen. Hydrogen has no future as a transport fuel. And the reason for that is that it's a very low density fuel and a very dangerous fuel. So I think that fuel cells for stationary energy may be able to use hydrogen, but we have to remember hydrogen's an energy carrier. You've got to get the energy from somewhere to put it in. Yeah? For transport, it's going to go nowhere. So my sense of hydrogen is it's a waste of time and a sop to the coal industry. They think they can produce the hydrogen that'll generate the future, uh, you know, uh, the power for our economy. I just don't think it's going to happen. Well, then, Tim Flannery, the question we all have is what can we do and does it really matter? And you make the point in your book that it actually does matter. You know, when we talk about recycling, the fact is that the way things are set up, it really Sadly to say, except in the case of paper, recycling doesn't do anything except make us feel better. I mean, there's a little advantage, but it's that feather. But when we're talking about this, is it more than a feather for each individual? I've thought about this a lot and struggled with it as I've my understanding has increased. I initially thought this was a scientific problem or a technological or an environmental problem. I now realise that it's at base none of those. It's 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 a moral problem. And it's a moral problem because it results from the consequences of our action on the world around us, our individual action. There's 6.5 billion people on our planet today, many of them, the great majority, using fossil fuels in their lifestyle. Now, if each one of us took the moral responsibility for our actions and started to think about how we could reduce those emissions, we wouldn't have a problem. And can I just point point out how simple some of this is? The best science suggests we've got to reduce our emissions by 70% over the next three decades in order to stabilise the climate. If you own an SUV at the moment and you drive that thing over a cliff or sell it or something and buy yourself a hybrid fuel car, um, you'll be cutting your individual transport emissions by 70% in one day rather than 30 years. So many of our consumer choices involve the emission of carbon dioxide, and we never think about it. When you go to a, a grocery store or a supermarket and buy strawberries that have been flown in a jet from Chile into, into North America, that takes a lot of fossil fuel to do that. If you buy some locally grown product, you know, you, you're avoiding those, those costs. If, if you buy organic produce, you know, it is so, that's such a powerful act because um, organic agriculture puts carbon back in the soil. The soil carbon store is twice as big as the living carbon store. So if we can just develop a more sustainable approach to agriculture, you're doing a great thing in terms of pulling the gas out of the air. You know, I, I'm just so delighted to see in this studio that you've got these wonderful compact fluoro light globes here you know, that are saving energy. One of the most stupid things that I see in newspapers is, you know, the old cartoon with the guy who thinks of the bright idea and it's an Edison light globe in the thought bubble coming out of his head. I mean, those Edison light globes are so obsolete in terms of technology. They're so inefficient. The really smart idea is the compact fluoro light globe. So when you go to the supermarket to replace your light globe, buy one of the energy efficient models. You know, all of those things help enormously. They all feel like I'm just adding a pile of dust to something that needs to be a mountain. Yeah, that's right. But it's each one of us 
taking a little bit away, you know, from the mountain that's the problem. I can't speak with any moral authority on this issue, or indeed nobody can, unless we have put our own house in order, unless we have done what's required. And, And it also builds your understanding so much to tackle this personally. Beyond those personal actions, what we really desperately need now is leadership on this issue. So whether your listeners are members of a church group or a social organization or a sporting club, you know, just to think about this issue and raise it, you know, are there some solar panels on your sport house or your church or whatever else? Just the statement that we care about this and we are, we are doing something to make a difference. Those sort of actions are enormously powerful. And uh, I just think that that's, that's what we need more of. We've had a signal failure of leadership at the highest levels on this issue. And that means that we need leaders elsewhere to start making a real difference. In mid-April, while you're on this tour, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger came out with a proposal which kind of puts California in line with Kyoto. What do you think of that? Do you know about it? Oh, wonderful. I, I just think, but, but I think you guys can do even better. You know, you people were the, the recipients of, or the, the primary beneficiaries, I should say, of this incredible revolution that the inf- information technology revolution and the internet brought to the world. And what happened then was that you know, the internet brought into competition a whole series of players that in the past had been separate and hadn't been subject to competition. The new energy revolution is going to do exactly the same thing for energy. So you people understand the details of this. And I think that California could drive this new energy revolution and become enormously prosperous. I mean, even more than it is today as a result of as a result of those changes. Yeah, we need to see the opportunities of change as much as the threats. There's something uh, involved with Kyoto that I don't understand called carbon credits. Is that mm-hmm. that idea that those who are polluting pay for it? At, at base, that's what, what it involves. It involves a carbon trading. And carbon trading, you can really think of it as the, the, the construction of a carbon dollar, you know, a mechanism for, for trading this stuff. My personal view is that it's much more effective to just have a carbon tax. And here in California, if you were going to adopt one system or the other, I would plumb very strongly for just a straight old carbon tax, much harder to evade, much harder to, to allow our corruption to, to whittle away at your gains. And it's just a simpler process. You can have a revenue neutral carbon tax if you want, where you take off some taxes and just put a carbon tax on the top. But the great thing about either the cap and trade system you mentioned, a trading system or a carbon tax, is that it gives investors certainty as to outcome. You know, one of the reasons we're not seeing the investments made now in energy infrastructure is that these are very long-lived assets and people are uncertain as to what the payoff's going to be. So if, for example, there is going to be a high price of carbon, there's no point building a coal-fired power plant. Instead, you'd build gas or wind or something else. At the moment, people are just waiting to see what the outcome's going to be. So I hope California will really take a lead in this. It's great to see your governor actually taking such a strong forward position. Hopefully it's for real. Yeah, well, it has to be. We've got no choice in this matter. We're not in this to fight a good fight. We have to be in this to win because the consequences of losing are just so unthinkable. The unfortunate thing about this this country, it seems to me as an outsider, and I say this with with empathy, is that there's about 30% of the population who are in the middle of the country and therefore who are not as exposed to ideas from the outside as other people and find themselves rather hostile to these these things. And and those people tend to, to hold back the development of the country as a whole. And I don't think that the US can afford to have that if it wants to maintain its preeminence in the world. You have to be a bit more agile in your thinking and a bit more sort of interconnected. I've just done a third, well, in the middle of a 31-city tour around yeah. the US. I'm meeting a lot of those people in some of these inland states. And what it's very abundantly clear to me is that the 
energy that's driving the US economy is being generated on the margins where people are exposed to outside ideas, yeah. whether it be California or New York or whatever. But somehow the politics is being driven from this fossilized center. And that's a dangerous combination. Somehow the country has to recalibrate this and make sure that the, the really profitable sectors of, the, of, of you know, the economy are actually getting a voice in this and are being heard and allowing innovation to take place. Because you know, in the absence of government regulation, you guys will keep floundering unless you get some good government regulation that allows your industry to prosper. I can just see a, a dreadful end game. The balance is wrong. Somehow, the conservative core that is not exposed to the outside world is driving the politics, and yet the wealth is being driven from those who are engaged with the world. And that, that's an unsustainable situation. These new technologies can really, really bring in money. Create enormous wealth. Every time there's been an energy revolution, prodigious wealth has been created. You know, whether it was coal in Britain in the 19th century, oil in the USA in the 20th, or this new energy revolution that's, that's started already. And China is aware of this. You talked about China earlier. China is a signatory of the Kyoto Protocol. They've ratified. They know they're going to be taking carbon emissions reductions starting 2012, and they've already put on voluntary emissions. They haven't done this because they want to save the world. They've done it because they know what the, the new energy economy is going to look like, and they want to be ahead of the game. Tim Flannery, what do you see as the realistic scenario here? My own bet is that within the next five years, the US will realize that they need to do something and that the enormous power of this free market system will be brought to bear to start reducing emissions. And we'll see a fairly rapid reduction of emissions over the next decade or two. I quite frankly don't think that'll be enough to, 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 to reduce a lot of the dangerous consequences we're already seeing. Um, and I suspect that within a decade, people will be talking seriously about getting the gas out of the air. Now, we don't know how to do that at the moment, but I think that a large proportion of the land surface area will be devoted to this in future. Um, and this will become the great topic. This will become the, the center of thought, I think, uh, for a whole lot of reasons, because we're, we're destabilizing the fundamentals of the planet. You know, so, so my guess is there will be swift action in the near future. It probably won't be enough. Uh, and we'll have to go to more far-reaching uh, technologies to try to stabilize the system. And what about the future of Sydney and Perth? You know, Australia is my home country, and when I look at the sort of water stresses that, that are, are put on those continent, continents now by these changes in weather, I worry greatly about their future viability. No one can predict the future, but I can see rising sea levels, reduction in rainfall, uh, falling crop yields, all having a big impact on Australia and a bit, very big negative impact. I hope my children can, can live in a world that avoids the worst of that, and that's why I'm here today. I, you know, we can't allow those things to develop. The Weathermakers was written, I guess, to make an impact. What I tried to do was just state as objectively and carefully as I could what the actual situation of science is and what the technologies are that, that can make a difference. What kind of response is the book getting overall? It's been published in Australia now for about six months. And for the first four months of that period, I went through a really difficult time. Every neoconservative commentator and industry lobbyist seemed to enter a relentless attack where every week the book was rubbished in the newspapers and people were saying that I was uh, not, not a competent scientist and as a director of a museum I shouldn't be receiving support from the corporate sector because this was this is really just rubbish. Thankfully, at, at that point, about must have been about December last, last year, our federal environment minister called a press conference with a conservative daily newspaper and said that he and the prime minister had been convinced by the science in the book that climate change was real. And that was amazing the way the attacks just stopped. 
We're now waiting to see what that actually means in terms of policy. Uh, so it has had an impact in Australia, but not yet in terms of policy. It's clarified the government's position, but hasn't led to a policy shift. And here in the States, at first I saw it being viewed as a radical view, and now suddenly, just a few weeks later, it's being taken in a different way and very seriously. Thank you. It, look, it is a very objective attempt. It, I, I, it's, not a, it's not a book full of polemic or anything like that. It's it simply I wanted to allow the average reader to see where science stood on this issue. And I think it, that makes it powerful because conservatives and lib liberals alike can use that, can understand that information and use it. I mean, I'm asked increasingly to speak for, with industry groups. So I've just been down in um, Charlotte with, with Ed Duke Energy talking to their people about it. They're the biggest, I think, electricity provider in the US. And it was fascinating to hear their view on this sort of stuff and be asked to speak to that group. So I do hope it's a powerful tool that allows us to, to move forward beyond this incredibly unproductive debate about whether it's real or not and get on to creating a better future. And it's real. It's real. Yeah, it's real. We can see it. Just look at the satellite images of the North Pole. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>